Welcome to the Retail Ready Podcast Season 2, hosted by Ben Wyatt. Your destination for food trends, business talk, and some serious knowledge bombs about the food industry. Before we start, a huge thank you goes to Worth Foods, who are our podcast sponsor. Worth Foods believe that enjoying a snack is an opportunity to pause for a moment, even when you're on the go. So next time you're listening to a Retail Ready podcast, grab a Worth Foods bar and enjoy a delicious pause moment in your day. Visit worthfoods.com.au for more information. Now let's get on with today's Retail Ready podcast episode. Welcome back everyone to the Retail Ready Podcast, another episode for you guys to enjoy and listen. And today's guest is is Daniel. Daniel is someone who I just said offline, I've I've been about 10 feet away from and rudely, uh, well, he was picking up an award. So I didn't want to go and introduce myself um, before uh, (laughs) his big opportunity and his big moment. But Daniel is someone who I have followed, like many other brands that have uh, recorded on uh, the Retail Ready podcast. I've, I've followed from a distance, and this guy has smashed it. The brand has smashed it. And like with all the other episodes, I want to know, not the secret, but the the hard work that has gone into this brand and where the journey started and, and get to know Daniel. So without further ado, Daniel, welcome to the Retail Ready Podcast. How are you? What an intro. Um, I feel like a rock star, but I'm not. So, um, but, um, mate, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. I used, I used to write down little intros, and being a dyslexic, it my brain couldn't do 400 things at once. And it, and it, I don't know, I'd hate to hear the early starts of these podcasts, but I'd probably sound like a night, right, idiot. So that was straight off the cusp. So I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad it's gone to a good start. So yeah, <laughs> you're, you're a natural. We're, we're off, we're off. But now I appreciate your time as, like I say, with most guests, you're giving up your time to, to tell your story and, um, like I say, just stare at a screen and uh, and have me pepper questions at you. So I'm going to leave it to you for the next 30 seconds or however long you want to take. Who are you and what is your business, Daniel? Sure. Uh, my name is Daniel Kiddo. I am the owner, founder of a Better For You, a healthy confectionery brand called Funday Natural Sweets. We're based in Melbourne in Australia and our product calling and product portfolio is really um, for low sugar and natural confectionery, that's better for you, makes you feel good and um, sort of reminds you of that uh, moment of being a kid uh, where you used to indulge and you really enjoy the sweet treats and as you get older, doing that becomes uh, a bit more complicated, a bit more uh, sense of sort of guilt comes over a lot of people and the mission of the business is to really make people enjoy lollies like a kid again. Yeah, it's fantastic. Good, good, good intro. I like it because you can't go very far these days without seeing a packet of your products. And that's a, that's a testament to you and what you've done with this brand. But I want to go back to the beginning. I, I'm very keen because I always find with, with all the lot of the guests, something started somewhere. The catalyst had to be, to be born. And when, Where's your early moments of when you saw an opportunity in this space and what were you doing and the early journey from there, if you can go back to, I don't know how many years you have to go back because sometimes it's a long, but what's your story? Um, Well, yeah, I think you're right. You know, the the journey really spans back um, as a kid and primarily really enjoying confectionery lollies and chocolate. And I had some serious struggles with weight uh, throughout childhood, um, even through high school. Mm. And I think even during that time, um, it wasn't just about enjoying the lollies and enjoying the chocolates and, you know, the weight issue. It was also a really strong desire for business and to do something myself and innovate and do something interesting. And even the earliest that I can remember starting a business or doing something entrepreneurial was um, probably in year seven or eight. Um, these were the days where everyone had things on VHS and mm. it was a really big deal, but DVD was becoming a really big thing. And um, it just shows sort of how long ago that was. It was probably like late 
90s, early 2000s, and uh, I was converting people's VHSs to DVDs, but I was doing it on in you know the family room, and I had a VHS and a DVD and wire <laughs> yeah. going all over, and you couldn't do it in 30 seconds. You had to wait the entire duration of the VHS. <laughs> Um, so I always, you know, and I called it DK's conversions, and it's actually still a, um, a, a it's because all got an ABN, which is really interesting. Um, so who knows? But wow, there's always that real strong desire to do something really interesting um, and get into business. And I was doing stuff like that throughout high school, like running art businesses that we um, with mates in shopping centres and trying to make some money over the school holidays. So I always had that, <laughs> and. Um, I guess, you know, back to the weight thing, after school, it was 18, everyone was going out, going to clubs, we were partying, we are doing what a lot of, you know, kids do. And I sort of realised being overweight isn't really helping me um, with socialising, <laughs> getting girls and things like that. And I re- just had this moment where my entire childhood Family had always been concerned. They were like, you know, it's probably you shouldn't eat this or you should be conscious of that. And it just clicked after school that i got to just do something about it myself and I can't let anyone really tell me I've got yep. that own choice. And within about six months, I had cut out all sugar. I started exercising and lo and behold, I'd lost about 25 kilos. Or Bloody so. hell. Feeling Bloody. unbelievable. Um, just feeling so excellent looking good, feeling confident. Um, And, you know, it was great from that perspective. The downside was that um, I didn't really get to eat confectionery or any lollies or chocolates, just things that I loved. And, um, yeah, I think from there I went to uni, uh, did commerce and law and um, got into actually moved to Melbourne originally from Perth, Mm -hmm. got a job in a tech business or a, a well, it's a tech company, but they own Luxury Escapes. So ended up getting really great experience there. Um, and then from there moved on to some vitamin and supplement companies. And that's sort of my first foray into FMCG and retail. Um, and I think all along the there was still this desire all the time to run my own business, mm-hmm. sort of be financially independent. And I'd met so many people, so many mentors, so many great people. And the thing they all sort of had in common is that they were running their own business. Um, not all of them successfully or some yep. of them in the past hadn't run it successfully, but, you know, in period stages in their life, they'd been running, you know, good businesses. And it was really clear to me throughout my professional experience that in order for me to be financially independent, for me to have the flexibility to do what I actually want to do and feel satisfied, I need to run my own business. Um, but all the mentors kept saying to me, well, you can't force an idea. They'd be like, well, what's your idea? I was like, I don't mm-hmm. know. You have one for me. Yep. Um, and I think what actually happened, I was working at a company called Thy Health. They, a Chinese-owned company, but they're the number one biggest vitamin and supplement company globally. Okay. Um, I think market cap's like seven or $8 billion. All right, just a small um, small definition then, yeah. Yeah, a small time. Um, and I was just having... Such a terrible time there. And, you know, there was a lot of, I had a lot of challenges. It paid exceptionally well. It's very comfortable, but I just wasn't really getting any satisfaction out of it. And I did something really sort of out of character. And one weekend, um, I had booked a trip to LA and to UK. Mm. And the whole premise it was, was to basically go into markets that were doing really well in the health food, vitamin supplement sort of sections and categories and see what was going on. Meanwhile, this was five months before COVID sort of set in. Yeah. So it was a really great timing that I could go. Um, and I spent, I think, a day in LA, a day in UK, a day flying, and I was back home. And I, you know, bought about $2,000 worth of stock. Um, but along the way I found, and I think part of this was just me trying to search for a great idea for some inspiration because I desperately knew I wanted to run my own business. And, um, yeah, I found some products in the the US that were doing incredibly well in this same sort of space, things that I didn't know were possible with confectionery. And, I mean, long story short, I came back after those three days. Within a week, I quit my job, went on a honeymoon with my wife, 
got back and while I was away on honeymoon, I was emailing suppliers whenever I could and got back, yeah, I think in December of 2020 and just started planning and developing a healthy lolly range. And that was, that's the beginning of um, where I am now. That, uh, that is incredible. And there's a lot going through my mind now trying to process that. What a summary and what a journey. And the main thing I got from that was there's a lot of building blocks to where you got to. Uh, do you know one thing led to another? The idea, the the mentors, the and what I really liked is, and and I've not heard that. Do you know where you just jump on a plane and go and get inspiration from overseas? Because a lot of people would look at that and go. Oh, that's expensive. Oh no, I can't do that. Or what? Go to LA for a day and London for a day? No, that you crazy. But say that trip, two grand of samples and maybe two grand on a flight and five hundred dollars on a hotel and some expensive. It might be five, five to seven grand all up. That money, I guess, probably is the most worthwhile money you've spent in business would you say because it gave you the idea and it it made you so laser focused and gave you a kind of a purpose would you say it was a hundred percent worth it and every dollar was worth it i think absolutely yeah for me it was you know the internet and google and all these stores Mm. make it so easy and accessible to find products but my, my, my belief is that unless you're there on the coalface, in the retailers, in the supermarkets, in the pharmacies, actually seeing these products, tasting them, yeah. seeing how they're merchandising, what people are re- reacting to them, asking the um, store uh, clerks what they think of it, you don't really ever get a true sense of how things are going in the market. And for me, even if I came back and there was no great idea, out of it, there would have been some level of inspiration. Yeah, yeah. From that trip, uh, for me specifically, that trip was really the catalyst. A to quit my job, and B once you quit your job, you got no money. So I needed to make I needed to make this work. You've got to do it, and yeah, <laughs> I I really like that tactic because it's it's different. And what I've picked up, and this is like we did season one of this podcast, and it was incredible. And season two, it's picking these gems and. And if anyone is listening out there, and I know the insights say you do, but it might just be my mum hitting uh, repeat a few times a week. But it's always finding these gems and doing things differently. And that is something that a lot of business would be like, oh, it's expensive to take you. Oh, LA for a day. Nah, it's too expensive. But they'd be happy to waste meeting times and uh, conference times. Do you know where you just go? I could go to LA, find one product, bring it back, and there we go. So I, I really like that, and uh, thanks for sharing that kind of little knowledge bomb, to be honest, because that's a different way of thinking. And you're building blocks, and I want to go back to your degree. Yep. Did that help massively in the early stages of your business? Because do, do you sell direct-to-consumer because of the degree that you've got or was the focus always to get into the retailers? Um, first of all, from, you know, back to that point about degrees, um, I did a commerce degree first. Actually, I'd started doing accounting and finance. And realized okay. I, hated, I hated it. <laughs> yeah. um, my dad's an accountant, so he wasn't overly pleased about that. <laughs> um, and I actually ended up moving to management and public relations with, I sort of just went from credits to high distinctions really quickly and um, not not it wasn't really about what I learned, but it was yeah. that um, getting those better grades then enabled me to get into law um, at UWA. Yeah. It was a really great union in WA and Perth. Um, and the law degrees probably helped me the most in terms of a knowledge about legal uh, documents and particularly around contracts and IP, um, but more so... Um, in the earlier days when you're trying to find a job, it definitely provides a level of credibility. And I think a lot of people look at uni degrees and think, oh, am I going to learn that much? Yes or no. The reality is people still value the uni degree, mm-hmm. uh, some differently to others, but it definitely sets you apart. And I think that's part of what it is. It's not necessarily about all that. You, there's a lot of discipline behind it. 
Um, but, you know, I think what had happened is because of my law degree, um, I ended up connecting really well with my um, future boss, who was Adam Schwab, who's now the CEO of Luxury Escapes, and got on really well because he was a lawyer and he actually admitted me in Melbourne as a as a lawyer a couple of years later. Oh, yeah. um, and just those sort of relationships that you can sort of garner from having those sorts of things in common are excellent. Um, but the interesting part in, is that when I went into technology in the beginning and then into retail after, they all independently aren't really relevant to confectionery. But mm. in a way, they did teach me a number of different things about a, working in a tech business, email systems, digital marketing, um, path, you know, customer experience, um, and then working in retail about, you know, merchandising and path to purchase and, you know, packaging design and um, point of sale and all these sorts of other things. And the combination of the two really have led um, me, I think, to be well-placed to do it. I'm by no means an expert, but probably better than a lot of other people. Yeah, you've got, and, got uh, some good touch points, kind of, yeah, yeah. You've, yeah. But I think the, the um, uh, it was certainly a important piece to be both offered direct to customer and in retail from the beginning um, because the data suggested over 90% of people are buying confectionery in a store and you can't ignore that. Yep. The, biggest, the biggest and fastest uh, segment is direct to consumer. So you need to be playing in both to actually have a viable business. Fantastic. No, that's really good. And so <laughs> you've quit your job. <laughs> you've just had a, a, a probably a, a beautiful honeymoon. What was the early stages like? Like, did you just go, I've got to make this work. So I'm going to do everything that I can. Or what was it? Because I know when I started my business, I had um, a huge whiteboard in in the shed and i just wrote down all right so a all the simple stuff i need an abn i need to get a website i need to all right i need to source packaging what was your process it was sort of similar actually um you know one of the first things i did was went down to office works and bought a whiteboard yeah yeah um, and, that, <laughs> and that sort of sat next to my desk you know largely untouched for a long time but yep. um that was there for me the critical uh, aspect of the business that needed to work was f- product. So it was formulations, uh, working on samples, procuring ingredients from global suppliers, developing and working on things at home to try get somewhere. Um, and then when that was, I'd sort of capped out because I'm not a food scientist mm. and going to get some help from the experts to try finesse the formulations. So for me, one of the, it, really interesting conversations I had at the early days was uh, someone who's an investment banker. And I said, look, if I'm setting up a business for success over the next five or 10 years or whatever, however long it might be, what are the things I really need to focus on? Mm. And one of those things was intellectual property and owning the formulation. And for me, that then meant, well, I need to go and develop it. I can't go to the manufacturer and just get get one off the shelf. Yep. Uh, it's really critical that I have that in case something happens down the track, I need to go to another manufacturer, whatever might happen. So the early days were really around the nitty-gritty of getting the formulation right. Uh, that The process for food, as you probably know, takes ages. You know, it can take <laughs> yeah. a couple of months um, to get a sample around and then, you know, everything just takes a very long time. At the same time, probably halfway into the development, COVID had set upon us in Melbourne and, you know, we were going into labs and um, testing out new formulations with uh, food techs and food scientists. And all of a sudden, you just couldn't go in anymore. They wouldn't allow mm. any third parties in the building. So, just, just what you want at the start of a business, hey, when you've yeah. just quit your job. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So, um, and so then, yeah, how did, how did you get around that? And then because uh, there would have been doubts in your head, from probably day one wouldn't they going oh is this going to work and then i'm sure i'd well there's a question how many different versions of formulations um did you do see develop trial like all the way until the product that you've got on the shelf now because that would have been in, incredible wouldn't it yeah well it took about a year and i'd say you know, between what I tested at home and in the lab, we would have tested at least 100 different mm. formulations. And, um, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is that when you're developing something for the first time that's novel and innovative, 
Uh, no one really knows the answer. It's really a process of elimination, <laughs> problem solving. Um, so it just became a really long-term project, at least for a startup business, a year is a really long, uh, yeah. feels like a really long time. Uh, for a multinational, a year is probably, you know, basic for a single Absol- Yeah, it's absolutely nothing, is it, for a multinational? <laughs> so, um, there, was a, there was a number of factors that were, um, I suppose, with and with, uh, against us. And some of that was that I knew we needed to be first in the market and um, because of COVID, it was going to make things more challenging. Mm-hmm. So really, there's just a huge amount of focus put in this project to happen really as quickly as possible. And, um, yeah, I think um, even despite the COVID and um, even once we had the formulation, it was about, well, who do you actually go to as a manufacturer? Yeah. And that's a whole, you know, separate topic where it's sort of the classic uh, small business independent person going out to a huge manufacturer and they 99 out of 100 literally said no or get staffed or come back later or yep. be more more aggressive than that and um yeah it just that that process took about oh, three or four months interesting yeah because because i find the same even with my full-time job like it's it's always a hard one isn't it you you because you, you're limited one in australia you want to use good factories but some hit you with the moq and i and i completely understand it like they don't want to turn their machine on just because some bloke called daniel's got a good idea because they've heard it probably a million times haven't they but then they're probably kicking themselves going oh that's probably the one that we should have trialed (laughs) so it's it it's a fine line because yeah factories in australia need to to run big volumes to keep the lights on because in the end of the day, there's not there's not much margin in manufacturing, so they need volume. Um, but you you you've got to find someone like yourself to then go. Oh yeah, I should have backed that um, because yeah, you, you've got a few distribution points. And yeah. I think the job is to really you know as an independent and you're starting out, it's just to show what you're planning on doing. Uh, and I recall setting up a business plan and going around to people's businesses during COVID. And standing at the front with a business plan saying, you know, make, manufacture for me, you know, I'll guarantee minimum order volumes, et cetera. Um, and at the time, those people still said no. Interesting. So, you know, I think, <laughs> yeah, it's still, um, it's still an interesting um, position to be in as a small business. Yeah. And, and then, because I, I I read like like I, said, I followed your story and uh, well f- every time I go to different places I see it pop up but chemist warehouse was I, am I right in saying this one of your earliest big wins and was that strategic or was that just from a timing uh, perspective that they took you on or there was a gap in there kind of um, in there and the like the snacking aisle category um it was a sort of an interesting combination because i'd worked with them before on a number of projects uh, so i had an idea of how they all worked uh, so that was beneficial mm. the second thing um really comes down to the fact that i'd started the business during COVID, and by that time end of um really 2020 uh 2020 early 2021 mm. um most people were going into pharmacies and not going into supermarkets because they were ordering online or they weren't driving, so they weren't going through any of the traditional, you know, petrol and convenience yeah. outlets or health food stores. So the game had changed completely. The landscape was, you know, flipped on its head. And the only way we could be successful through going into the offline market was to go into pharmacy. Um, so we followed, you know, the trends of where people were going. And so naturally the first place would be, you know, the largest pharmacy group in Australia, which is Chemist Warehouse. And, you know, thanks to them and their sort of understanding of my vision and buying into my vision, uh, they took uh, four products at the time into, you know, close to 500 stores. And then, yeah, that allowed me to place orders with a manufacturer uh, given the MOQs are so high. Uh, and then we just followed the the route of mm-hmm. uh, whether it be supermarket or petrol convenience. We just followed where people were going and spoke to those retailers at the time. Fantastic. How how good and how, like, the feeling of getting that win. And, like, it, 
yours was a great win. Like many many brands would give probably their right arm to just get an early win like that. But how good is that for you? Where you've got this business plan, you you need that volume to 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 explode and bounce you into business. I and and this is something that I've started to do a little bit more with my own business is celebrate the the little wins. To be honest, because you know you can just. Once you've got that email, it's then like, all oh, right, I need to do this with the factory. I need to do this with the packaging, and oh, I need to GS one blah blah barcodes. Did you celebrate that win, or was it is it just a blur now? And what was kind of yeah, what did that do to you from a confidence level to then make you just like yeah, it was kind of stride into the next meeting? Yeah, I mean, like all these things, clearly. It's a fantastic outcome. Uh, you know, you win 500 stores for mm. products. It's fantastic. But I think very quickly, you know, after probably a very small celebration, it was down, like you mentioned, down to business, getting, making sure everything was manufactured on in time, um, packaging, barcodes, all the nuances of yep. retail. And I'd never done it before by myself. So it was incredibly difficult yeah yeah and a lot of that stuff takes away from the sense of you know victory it's you know being offered retail space is a privilege and it doesn't last very long mm-hmm. if you don't do a good job so while it was encouraging it certainly amped up the pressure and the stakes of the business very significantly because it was then very real um so, <laughs> it's no, so true the daily anxiety of um, yeah the retail business is even even when you've done everything and the pallets wrapped up I I don't know if you're the same but I I even get the anxiety of like oh like okay there's a pallet there I hope it makes the warehouse I hope yeah I hope it then doesn't get lost in the warehouse and then do you know if everything's out of your control but you still have this anxiety that just burns away going oh this is this is it just kills you inside, but then you just move on to the next one, don't you? <laughs> Absolutely. I think, yeah, I, I, I agree. And you know what? There's the, the benefit is there's so many things happening that you get very distracted mm. very and, and move on from that sense of anxiety. But I think as the business scales, that level of anxiety also increases because the risks are greater, yeah. the stakes are higher. Um, you know, you're dealing with, you know, now four to 5,000 stores, not just 500 stores. Um, so, you know, it, it means you've got to be so well organized and prepared to, to make it work and function. Um, you know, even in the early days, say with Chemist Warehouse, we had just got the confirmation and the date that they required the stock into their warehouse was about, I think, six weeks or seven weeks. <laughs> the, shipping, the shipping takes six weeks. Yeah. So um, that, that wasn't going to happen. So, you know, to ensure that we didn't lose the space on shelf, uh, that came with a more, I think it was somewhere between hundred dollars and $120,000 of air freight costs. Oh, yeah. So these are the sorts of real, you know, challenges that, real challenges that businesses need to go through. It's great to win these deals, but mm-hmm. I can tell you that there was no profit made in the first couple of months because of all these huge costs to um, actually have a brand and shelf. And, and and that's great to touch on because my next question was like, yeah, the, the ups and downs of, of running a business that you've got a lot of competition. Like You've entered a, a market that probably is one of the most saturated and and, and it's one of them where you're probably having to do so much hard work to tell customers, oh, there is an alternative. You don't need a packet of Allen's lollies. You can actually have these. So my my question is, one, how have you found getting your brand known? Um, kind of some key strategy. And two, just the lessons in business and retail um, along the way, if you've got any kind of key um, call-outs or things that come to the top of your mind. Yeah, well, yeah, look, both great points. We have a big challenge of educating consumers about the fact that there's even something uh, considered a healthy lolly Mm. and there's a lot of scepticism around that and, you know, I don't really disagree with the sentiment um, because your whole life you've been provided full sugar confectionery and um, you don't know that there's an alternative because if there was, why wouldn't they be offering, and I mean they multinational, (laughs) offering you that sort of product. So it does take 
small, nimble, innovative businesses and people to come up with these sorts of ideas. And the challenge is that you then need to educate people and explain the ingredients, why it's, you know, 91% uh, lower sugar than regular confectionery, or how we can develop a low sugar confectionery product without using sugar alcohols which make people feel sick yeah so that's our that's our challenge um the benefit for us is that the products taste excellent and very similar to products that people know and love and once they try the products uh, there are very sort of high percentages of conversion which is excellent for a product like and a retail business yeah so you know a lot of the stuff we do is sampling um you know, social media marketing influencers to really explain the benefits of our of our product. Um, in terms of retail lessons, um, I think you can never really overestimate how important shelf space is. Yeah. Uh, so I think taking you should never take that for granted, and, and um, certainly as well, just adapting with the environment. So, you know things are becoming a bit more uh, tougher for people financially um, with the inflation and the impacts of that on, on grocery and supermarket products. And, you know, I think as a business owner, you get to determine pricing and costings to an extent. And we could have increased our product costs throughout the period. And that would have meant that consumers have to pay more at the checkout. And we sort of, you know, make those decisions not to do that to support a, the retailer, but also the customer yep. to make sure that they can actually have that product and it's accessible to them. So I think just staying with how things are moving in the industry with where people are at, being very adaptive and um, I think just being in touch with your customers to understand what's important is very helpful. Those sorts of customer insights that you can get internally um, and then share with retailers do count quite significantly. So if you've got a product that's doing really well online, it's not getting mm-hmm. retail, sharing those sorts of insights and analytics with the retailers is much more likely to result in getting shelf space. Um, and, you know, also just knowing your category. So is it a high-velocity uh, promotional yep. category? Is it not? Uh, considering where in the store you should sit, I mean, there is a, a fundamental reason in Woolworths that we do sit in the health food aisle and um, and not in confectionery, and that's because we essentially a subcategory of confectionery. It's more expensive. We've got you know it's gluten free, and a lot of the people shopping uh, for those sorts of items are going in health food. Whereas thirty percent of consumers are just avoiding the confectionery aisle altogether. So just having insight as to the category, the customers that are buying you will allow you to actually be speaking to the right people in retail and giving you the best chance of success. That's no, really fascinating. That yeah, and 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 that that yeah, another knowledge bomb uh, for people just to just to take that because you, you learn so much from yeah the insights and I really like that about the online piece, like taking taking winning products online because that's something pretty new to be honest. I'd say over the last few years, you know, where if, because take for example Muscle Nation, Muscle Nation. I think what they've done in the retail space is just incredible. I, I just saw new SKUs um in coles today they they like yourself like they sell everything online so they can go i wouldn't take i don't know the the raspberry flavor one maybe take the the vanilla one because look at the insights and you can do the same and and that's something new like even when i had my coles hat on back in the day like you you didn't see many people come with yeah uh, online sales data it was always like this is what's happening overseas and uh this brand a is doing this so we should be doing that kind of thing so yeah really really fascinating and one one fascinating aspect of it, you're in a you're in a huge category do you know lollies like i wouldn't like to know kind of the dollar value of the category but it it, it dawned on me when i spoke to scott a couple of episodes ago who uh runs raw sea the coconut and it's a high turnover. It's, you know, units per store per week through the roof. You're in a category that, you know, people buy confectionery and buy sweets sometimes every day, at least once a week kind of thing. So did did that play on your mind as well that you can go, this can actually be big, even in those early day business plans where you go, it's not just a organic, I don't know, Q 
quinoa um kind of chocolate bar this is something that the masses can have did that play on your mind and like go into your business thinking yeah absolutely i think the first thing that came to me wasn't necessarily the size of the category but the actual product itself so it needed to be innovative different and customers needed to want it Mm. and demand it um and i think establishing that is more important than picking in a category that's the biggest or the best because typically those categories come with the highest level of competition as well. Yeah. So for me, it was really product-based initially, but, I, you know, I guess one of the benefits of, of where it's all sort of ended up is confectionery in Australia is around $1.3 billion as a category. And 650 million of that is, you know, around gummies and jellies and all the sort of softer um, products that we all sort of like. So it's a very big category. Um, The thing that I liked and the reason I sort of got into it as well is understanding that around 30% of consumers are not even walking into that category or buying in that category. So for me, it was about, well, that's how much the category is worth today. But how much can the category be worth tomorrow if we can actually bring in consumers who all love something sweet Mm -hmm. but are not buying it because there's no health benefit? So we're playing in a really large category with the ability to grow significantly. And I think to your point, the consumption habits are and do make a very big difference for businesses. So if you're selling... I don't know, like kitchen detergent or laundry product, you might hold it for a month or two. Um, So it's a bit of a slower moving product, but typically you might have a better margin. But with confectionery, it's a volume game. And if you can get your unit economics right, you can do really well. Um, I think the challenge, particularly for confectionery, is you walk down the confectionery aisles anywhere, not just the major supermarkets, and it's, you know, half price, 40% off. Mm -hmm. Um, It sort of devalues uh, a lot of those propositions and those brands and no one at the time had invented or come up with a premium line of gummy-based confectionery products that could be mass market and, and available for everyone. So I think they're all really important factors. Um, I, but I do believe there's a book called Zero to One and it's just about creating something from the beginning that no one, it's completely innovative, completely different, that consumers want uh, rather than p- picking up like a quinoa and yeah. adding an ingredient to it and calling it a, you know, tomato quinoa. Yeah. There's, that's, that was the focus, to come up with something awesome and interesting. Fantastic. And I'm keen to know, like, you, you've done a lot of this work yourself. What what does the Funday team look like? Are you still doing the the retail side, the marketing side, the the legal side and all that? Or... Have you now, because it's funny because I'm reading, um, I need, I've got that uh, zero to one in my wish yeah, list on Audible, um, but I'm currently reading Buy Back Your Time at the moment. And it's really interesting. It's like, don't just employ someone for the sake of it, employ someone to, to buy back your time so that you can focus on uh, the, the stuff to build your business and enjoy. So what's been, yeah, the growth and an average day, for you now in the business i haven't heard of that book uh but i think from your sort of brief explanation it's it's really valuable lesson and valuable point um you know most um i think most times people try to do everything themselves Mm. and it is good to delegate and to um, get people on board that know more than you that can help you and essentially buy back your time so um that is absolutely true the challenge is that in a startup you don't necessarily have the profit and cash Correct. to actually bring on. Ain't that the truth, eh? Ain't that the truth? <laughs> so, um, that, that's always a challenge. Um, and I think to an extent it's been my strategy to bring on people as required mm-hmm. and not overdo it. And I think there's, you know, there are vanity metrics and those vanity metrics can be about sales uh, as opposed to focusing on, say, profit it can be vanity metrics focusing on how, well, how many staff do you have? You know, I speak to a lot of people, friends, family, and the first question they want to know is how many staff do you have? Interesting. Uh, as if that's the measure of whether you're successful or not. Uh, I, I just don't believe that is the case whatsoever. Yep. Um, 
I, I think bringing on people when the time is right with the right backgrounds is a really smart way to do it. And I would say the opposite. The leaner your team, the more efficient they can be, uh, the better uh, the business yep. will be, the more profit you can generate and then reinvest back into brand. Um, so I disagree with a lot of the sentiment around growing big teams. I'm sort of the old, maybe old school, just keep it lean. Uh, but that means you've got to have good people that help you out. Um, and I think as an owner, your job is to be really decent at everything. You're probably never going to be excellent at one <laughs> thing and you certainly won't have the time to be excellent at one thing. So you need to be across everything. You need to be across EMF, ERP systems, financial systems, um, you know, ordering, marketing, whatever it might be. Yep. That's why I, I like the idea of people getting into business once they've had a really diverse exposure to different industries because it actually makes them more wholesome. Um, so, you know, I think we're, we're a lean team. We've got like maybe six or seven people. Um, we've got a number of agencies that assist us. But for the size of the business we're at now and close to 5,000 stores having, you know, six full-time people and a couple casuals and part-time is a very small number of staff to, to maintain. And, um, you know, thankfully uh, at this stage, no one's, no one's left uh, <laughs> for, any, for any, any bad reasons at all. But um, I think having fostering that great environment internally as well and developing a culture, which is very hard to do in the early stages when you're just so busy trying to make it work, becomes even, and I certainly uh, can learn, um, a lot in terms of that, um, it becomes super important to keep those people around. But my day, as I said, it's really doing everything. Every day is going to be completely <laughs> different. It might start with a marketing meeting or a call with a PR agency. Uh, then it's going to demand planning six months out and yep. procuring raw materials from all over the world, uh, dealing with uh, banks where we've got finance facilities, making sure our relationship with the bankers is good, that we're paying back everything on time. We've got enough money in the bank. And so it's, you know, by the day, time the day's finished, you, you know, you don't even know what you've done. You've just accomplished so much. No, I really, I really like that. And, and and again, another knowledge bomb because I think a lot of people, and, it, and it's truth that like, yeah, I like to run my business lean. And and it's interesting. I had um, a drink. This would have been about 12 months ago. Um, we're with uh, the lads that set up basic babes and, they're a huge setup, huge, absolutely like selling gin, vodka, all, all all across the show. And it's like two of them. The two of them, and I think they pay a, uh, a food tech, um, do you know, when they need. And that got me really thinking, okay, it's true. A lot of people use the vanity metric, how, oh, how many staff you employ. And it's in this day and age, it's so easy to pay other people. And like, you don't need to have a warehouse manager because you don't even need your own warehouse. Like, you know, there's, there's so many other options. You don't, you don't need to pay someone 40 hours to sit at a computer to call himself a graphic designer. You just pay people ad hoc to do the work when needed. So it's a different way of thinking, which I feel that, yeah, you, you're taking on board and you can pay agencies to do stuff and, even people to to sell your product into retailers um, and pay them on a, a a win basis. So I really like the way you're doing it because it allows you to grow your business. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think ultimately just getting good people on when you bring them on is is critical. Yeah, and that's that's one of the hardest things uh, business owners will ever face um, because as a business owner, as you'll know. You've got a very clear vision for how everything should look and feel and um, it's bringing everyone to that vision and same page that becomes the challenge um, but when it works it's, it's really excellent awesome and to finish this off it's been absolutely wonderful hearing this story and it's it's gone down different pathways not just about your product which has been great and so where does the vision for the future where do you see that and where do you tell your team this is where i want to take the brand and the products and yeah what yeah do you have do you have a, a clear vision or is it a this would be a nice to have in the next 12 to 24 to 36 months um yeah look it's always an interesting question to be asked about long-term vision when you're so young mm. we've only just really clocked over two years in business so i think you know initially starting the business i had very 
really great and huge aspirations for taking over a number of categories and industries and growing product portfolios extensively. But the more that I'm in it, the more that I end up dialing back Mm. the sorts of things that I actually want to go into um, and really remaining super focused on a small number of of things that we're currently doing. So, you know, we have the ability to go into a number of different categories. Uh, The question is, you know, always, is it the right time? How much is it going to cost you? Will it be successful? Do people actually want whatever product you're going to offer in that category? Um, And I think the worst thing we can do as a business is take away from the success of what we're currently doing and reinvest a, you know, money, but also resources in terms of time and effort into going into other categories, which may or may not be successful. But the more you do, the less focused you are. Um, And particularly at an early stage, it can be really, really risky for a brand to do too much. So our goal at the moment is really just to keep on doing what we're doing and become excellent at it. Um, We're very focused on, you know, the local markets, making sure that we are the number one healthy confectionery brand in Australia. We know globally people like and eat our product and, you know, naturally extending what we've got into other markets makes a lot of sense. But moving into other categories at this stage uh, is probably something we're not thinking of purely so we don't divest resources so too broadly. Mm, I, re- I really like that and, I f- and and that's that's fantastic and again another way of thinking differently and not going at, going with the norm because I, I and it, I spoke about this um on a meeting two weeks ago uh, like I've have, I have a dog uh, treat range and for me you could easily just grow skew after skew you know and and hope and and like you say it costs a lot of money but I've got a core range and I and I always say use the same analogy. If I had a hundred dog owners in a park and I said to each one, Do you know Doggy Licious? I'd probably have one or two, I think, in like that would say, Yeah, I know Doggy Licious, yeah, oh yeah, they sell that. I don't need to grow my range. What I need to do is tell more customers who Doggy Licious is to grow the value of the business and sell more products. And it sounds like that's probably where you're at as well, where if you've got 100 people in a cinema eating snacks and you said, does anyone know Funday? You might, I think, by the, the size of your business and how it's done, you might have 20 to 30 people out of the 100, do you know, going, oh, yeah, yeah, really like those snacks. So do you see it as trying to get that 100 people in the cinema going, ah, oh, love those snacks and I buy them every week kind of thing? I, I, look, I don't think it's... Um... The hundred is is I don't even think the top brands have a hundred percent penetration in the market and awareness. But you know, certainly at this stage in the business, we use tracking software from brand perspective to actually understand. You know, out of a hundred, how many people do know us? And yep. we set we set benchmarks uh, against other major businesses that not that we aspire to be as a brand, but mm. aspire to be from a brand awareness perspective. Uh, even within our own industry, and that allows us to be very focused on investing a lot into brand, not just marketing. Yeah, correct. And, you know, until we hit the sort of points that we we feel like we need to, um, there's little point venturing out into um, other categories. I know yeah. you're in the, in the dog space, but, you know, even Mavers who – um, are now sort of <laughs> competing against you, but they were always just a peanut butter brand, you know, until uh, for many, many years. And then they decided, you know, to go into pet. Um, but they couldn't have done that after a year. It only is when you actually. 100%. Yeah, agreed. So I only bring that, that, that uh, example up because that's certainly within your space now. And they've probably seen your business and thought that it's thriving and they'll try and get onto it. But, um, these are, the sorts of, these are the sorts of the realities, I think. Um, yeah. Really and, growing the business. and that's really interesting because, yeah, your your competition are probably looking at you and they've probably got the food techs working on it as well, which I always see as like Mavis copying my product. I saw that as great. Like I did a, I remember uh, doing a LinkedIn comment and I was like, great, because their marketing spend will only help bring eyes to my product as well and it's probably the same in your situation if 
more people see your brand and see see the trend and see customers go actually buying it and buying it again and that repeat purchase the, yeah. that your category will grow yeah i agree i think um actually competition is excellent mm. uh, particularly in a market where uh you're sort of new or small or you know it, it really uh, removes that huge amount of cost when it comes to education because you're sharing that cost mm. with someone else to educate the same group of consumers. So I, I absolutely agree. I think um, as long as, you know, competition is respectful of one yes. another, yeah. um, not necessarily ripping off each other's packaging. And we've got, you know, we've currently got situations in even in major supermarkets where other brands that are significantly greater than us have, you know, taken a lot of our packaging and colours as, you know, inspiration and they're sitting really close to us in the category and we've heard from a number of people that they're buying theirs thinking it's ours. So these are the... How fascinating, yeah. To an extent, it is growing the market. Um, A lot of it you can, you know, I think it is um, flattering to hear that other businesses that are substantially bigger are doing things like that um, and trying to emulate you know, the successes or yep. you know, what, what we're doing. and um, But I think ultimately it's actually positive for the brand. It just grows the market even more. So rather than a $1 million market, it's now a $5 million mm-hmm. market. And you can own more of, you know, even if you own a small percentage, you're owning a small percentage of a bigger. Yeah, it's a good way of looking at it, yes. Mate, I, I have really, and I said this before offline, like I do these podcasts because I love to know, Kind of like, yeah, the, the foundations of how a business comes together and then just your own personal journey. And uh, it's been 50 minutes. I've enjoyed every 50 minutes because it's it's been insightful. I think a lot of people will take a lot of knowledge. Like I've taken, like say, those knowledge bombs that you've dropped are fantastic because you hope that other startups can look at that and think differently as well. Like that trip to LA and London like, just go and do it. You, you're going to waste five grand on a website that probably you think a million people are going to come to when it never happens. Yeah. Go and use that f- five grand and go and pick up a product or a brand inspiration and bring it back. So I really, really like that. So I just want to say thank you again for your time, Daniel. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing about your story and fun day. No, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. It's been great chatting to you. Time's flown uh, very fast and probably need to go pick up my daughter now. But, <laughs> but um, it's been excellent chatting. Awesome. You you have a great weekend and look after yourself. You too. Thanks. Cheers. Bye now.